0: Hi, I'm Tom Rivett-Karnak, and I'm one of the hosts of Outrage and Optimism, a TED podcast. Is it too late to avert the climate crisis? This is increasingly the question that is on everyone's lips. The answer is, it depends what we do now. Each week on Outrage and Optimism, together with my co-hosts, we break down the latest news, make it intelligible, and help you understand how you can be part of this generation that will make the difference. Find Outrage and Optimism wherever you get your podcast. Ozone Fluid Net hairspray works, yet it leaves hair feeling like
1: hair. Ozone Fluid Net contains no lacquer, doesn't clump the hair together or paste the hairdo down. You can't tell that
0: a woman uses it by the way her hair looks. Her hair can look as natural as unsprayed hair. Ozone Fluid Net, the hairdresser's hairspray, in the pink and gray can.
1: Going back to the good old days, the accelerating rate of men's progress. For this is the age of industrial chemistry. As we have progressed as a people, we have taken liberally of our Earth's resources.
0: Scientists have discovered a trend. Each spring over Antarctica, a hole in the ozone develops. Do you think these chlorofluorocarbons are causing this depletion? They said, oh,
2: it has to be wrong. It has to be wrong.
0: We are passing on extremely
1: grave problems for our children when the time to solve the problems, if they can be solved at all, is now.
0: Early hairsprays were developed in Europe during the Roaring Twenties, but they reached their height of popularity in the 1960s. You needed quite a bit of hairspray to create the trendy updos of that period. In 1968, the production of hairsprays alone was almost the same as the total number of aerosol cans produced in the previous decade. And yes, you heard me correctly. The hairspray featured in the commercial you just listened to was named ozone. Pretty ironic, considering that the chemicals used as propellants in hairsprays and other aerosol cans from the period were actually destroying the ozone layer. In previous episodes, we spoke about chlorofluorocarbons and their original role as refrigerants. But that was not CFC's only use. As a matter of fact, it was just a fraction of the use. Before anyone knew how harmful they were for the environment, CFCs were used in everything from aerosol sprays and air conditioning to the making of plastic foam. In 1974, six billion aerosol sprays were produced in the world while the annual global production of CFCs was close to a million tons. That same year, two chemists finally answered the question, what happens to CFCs after they're released into the atmosphere? Once called Miracle Chemical, CFCs were about to be exposed as chemical pollutants. In 1970, Frank Sherwood Rowland had been the chemistry department chair at the University of California in Irvine for six years. Feeling uninspired by his day job, he asked his school for money to go to a conference organized by the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna. Traveling through Austria, he met a man who worked for the US Department of Energy. Hearing about his background, the man invited him to participate in the department's new workshops on chemistry and meteorology. Roland was a chemist, but without a lot of experience in atmospheric science, Well, it's not entirely true. When he was 15, Roland volunteered at his local weather station, collecting data on rainfall and local temperatures. Besides that, he didn't know much about chemical processes in the atmosphere. But Roland was intrigued. One of these workshops held two years later would set him on the path that would mark his career.
1: I was invited to the one that was in 1972. And at that meeting, uh, I heard discussion uh, of the uh, work being done by Jim Lovelock, who had invented uh, the gas chromatograph, had invented the electron capture detector. That detector sort of increased the sensitivity by somewhere between 10,000 and 100, 10,000 10, and a million. It, it changed CFCs from something that was undetectable to being easily detectable. And it, uh, that he found it everywhere uh, on a cruise uh, from England to South America, to South America, and on to Antarctica. But then, when the following year, when I was writing my proposal for the uh, Atomic Energy Commission, I included that as a, a one-page add-on to investigate what would happen to the CFCs. The ozone was not mentioned.
0: Roland needed someone to help him with his research though. At that time, Mario Molina, a young Mexican chemist, was just finishing up his PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. Molina and Roland, often affectionately called Sherry by those close to him, were both based in California and had met during local professional events. They got along well and shared similar interests despite their 15 year age difference. So a year later, Molina joined Roland's lab as a postdoctoral fellow. The two scientists were discussing what Molina should focus on when a research project caught the young chemist's eye. It was Roland's CFC research proposal.
2: The question was, what happens? In, it's a very open question. What process would destroy these molecules in the natural environment? Biology,
0: uh, or some chemical reactions yet to be discovered, or Both chemists had some knowledge about what happened in the atmosphere, but to do the research, they had to learn everything they could about atmospheric chemistry. Luckily, both had already worked with compounds similar to CFCs. Question for completeness in the back of our minds is, let's look at
2: the whole cycle. So these things are produced industrially, so they're destroyed there. And then eventually the the atoms combined, perhaps in different molecular forms, make it back to the to the Earth's surface. But is there something in between? Yeah, well, they must react with those. Ones. Hey, that's, there is, industry was more or less reassured that these compounds are so stable, even if it wasn't clear or they would destroy, but there's absolutely nothing to worry about.
0: <laughs> As we've seen before in our story, it turned out the industry was wrong. For Molina and Roland, the first step was to investigate how CFCs decompose. CFCs were known to be very stable chemicals. That much was true, at least when they stayed in the troposphere, the lower part of the atmosphere. For those who are not familiar with the atmosphere, it has five major layers. From lowest to highest, they are troposphere, stratosphere, mesosphere, thermosphere, and exosphere. For the sake of this story, we're mostly interested in the first two, the troposphere, where most of Earth's weather happens, and the stratosphere, which hosts the ozone layer. Let's get back to Molina and Roland now. Pretty soon, Molina figured out that if CFCs don't get destroyed at lower altitudes, they simply continue to go up.
2: One of the questions was, is there a process that will destroy them in competition to destruction in the stratosphere, which means that only a smaller fraction will get there, but the numbers appear to indicate that it was comparable to what had been industrially produced, so we knew there was no fast process.
0: At higher altitudes, CFC molecules abide by a different set of rules, and that's because higher stratosphere is exposed to the sun's ultraviolet light. The only thing protecting the lower atmosphere from this radiation is the ozone layer. So what happens to CFCs when they reach this height? Molina himself conceded that at the time, it seemed a bit far-fetched, but soon enough, they formulated a theory. Molina and Sherwood's theory was that ultraviolet light can break apart CFC molecules, releasing chlorine atoms, which react easily with ozone molecules composed of three oxygen atoms. When a chlorine atom encounters an ozone molecule, it takes one of the oxygen atoms away, leaving oxygen, O2, and chlorine monoxide, ClO. Chlorine monoxide then reacts with another ozone molecule, converting it to two oxygen molecules and in doing so, frees the chlorine to do more damage. Based on their calculations, they came to a shocking conclusion. One chlorine atom could destroy over 100,000 ozone molecules before it's removed from the stratosphere. And let's just remind ourselves that at the time, the yearly production of CFCs was close to a million tons globally. Molina and Roland knew straight away the ozone layer was in real danger. In 1974, Molina and Roland published a paper with their findings in Nature, the same journal where the discovery of the ozone hole would be announced 11 years later. The paper described how, based on the calculations of present and future CFC's emissions in the atmosphere, they expected a 20 to 40% decrease in the ozone layer within 40 to 150 years. Initially, it didn't make as much of an impact as they were hoping. The two scientists didn't know how to get media attention so they decided to present their research during the annual American Chemical Society's national meeting, hoping the media and fellow scientists might finally hear their warnings. They also invited a Dutch scientist, Paul Crutzen, whose research on ozone helped them formulate their own theory. It was a place where you could communicate, to at least to other chemists, and so on.
2: So we sort of naively organized a press conference. Okay. And we thought, okay, let's, we made the list, we'll invite first somebody that will tell about the measurements that they are measured in the atmosphere, repeating, sort of summarizing Lovelock's results, and then uh, Paul Krutz and how the atmosphere works, and then we'll tell our story. Why was it very naive? Because that's not the way (laughs) press conferences (laughs) work with the media. You have to come up with a punchline at the very beginning. So, practically all the reporters left after the very first. (laughs) So nobody nobody was there when we talked about (coughs) our (laughs) findings later, of course, we learned hard and then we did begin to make news, but slowly because it was uh, not something common, it was a sort of an unusual thing to to talk about. Invisible gases, invisible rays, invisible atmosphere.
0: Some scientists also didn't react positively. They thought Roland and Molina were just trying to make the news. Others, however, were scared by the implications of the theory. They went back to their labs and decided to replicate Roland and Molina's study. Within two weeks of the conference, multiple sources confirmed their results. Some noted that Molina and Roland did make one mistake. These scientists thought ozone could be destroyed even faster than the duo had predicted. September 1978, three months after the paper had been published, the story made front page news. People were getting scared. Aerosol spray sales went down. Governments started considering CFC regulations. The CFC industry knew it had to respond, and quickly. They didn't flat out deny the findings of the study. The industry used the leaded gasoline playbook. Industry representatives said that what Roland and Molina presented was just a theory which hadn't been proven with any relevant ozone measures. They said they were more than willing to change something, but only after substantial data could be presented to them. On the other hand, scientists across the planet were warning that by the time they had the actual data, the problem might be too big to control. The industry replied with its own set of data. They came out with the numbers related to the financial impact CFC regulation would have on the economy. There are no chemicals available to replace CFCs, industry representatives said. To appear less confrontational, a trade group representing the companies promised to finance a study to test the theory. However, it would take three years before they would have the results. The potential danger of future CFC emissions was minimized and obscured by the implications for the global economy, which was, at the time, in recession. The stalling tactic worked. Regulation was put on hold And over the following years, the industry worked hard to undermine the ozone depletion theory and the scientists behind it using progressively more sophisticated methods. Next time on Ozone, ozone deniers take center stage. Subscribe to Climate Solutions so you don't miss the next chapters of Ozone, the story of how we dealt with the biggest environmental disaster humanity encountered, until climate change. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your podcasts. This was Climate Solutions from the European Investment Bank. The interview segments with Mario Molina are extracts from the oral history interview with Mario J. Molina conducted in May 2013 by David J. Caruso and Jody A. Roberts of the Chemical Heritage Foundation's Center for Oral History. Clips from the interview with Sherwood Rowland are part of the American Meteorological Society Oral History Project collection and used with permission from the American Meteorological Society. The American Meteorological Society Oral History Project was created as a joint program between the American Meteorological Society and the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research. It aims to capture the history of the atmospheric sciences as told by the researchers,
1: scientists, administrators, and others working in the field.